Well, in following along with the theme of this sermon series, I've effectively turned a four-week series into a six-week series. And so I've stretched it, and I hope you're stretching it too. So, hey, we're really glad that you're here this morning. Happy Memorial Day weekend to you. And we are diving into what is a difficult section and topic of the scriptures. And my goal this morning is not to answer all the questions that you have about this topic, because I'm sure if you're like me, they're, they're many and they're vast, but my goal is to give us a, a lens through which to have a conversation and interaction with the Holy Scriptures. I um, have the chance this year to coach my eight-year-old's baseball team, and uh, the field is right next to a playground, and the playground is lined with these little pebbles that make up the bed of the playground. And I was walking over to practice just uh, the other day, and I walked through this playground with all the gear, and I got this little pebble in my shoe, and um, I was the guy that did not take the time to take the pebble out of my shoe throughout the whole practice. So the whole practice, I'm like limping along, and um, I really wish I just would have bent down, took off my shoe, and took the pebble out, because that would have been a lot easier and a lot less painful in the long run. This subject has been a pebble in my proverbial shoe. I um, had questions about this in my time in seminary that uh, I never quite got resolved. In fact, I started to have more questions about it. And it's a question that you may have too. And if you do, the invitation this morning is to wrestle with God, with his scriptures, to try to figure out how can we view this topic in light of who Jesus is. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. This follows the series we've been doing in 1 Samuel 14, where Jonathan, the son of Saul, the king of Israel, attacks the Philistine army, and with only two swords, they end up wiping out the whole army. And if you read forward just a little bit, you come to 1 Samuel 15, and in 1 Samuel 15, it says this, verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on, uh, when they came out of Egypt. The, the Amalekites said, you can't walk through our land, you have to go around. Now go and strike down Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, oxen and sheep, camel and donkey. Yikes. I mean, what did the, what did the camel and the donkey do? It's one of those passages, though. It's 37 times in the Old Testament. Uh, the idea of show them no mercy is um, attributed to the words of God. 37 times you read something like this. Don't let anything live. Wipe it all out, even the children and the infants. And I don't know about you, but uh, that grades on me a little bit. It even grades on our sense of justice where we go, well, well, what did they do wrong? And God, if you're really like this, I'm not sure I want to follow you. And I know a lot of people that have walked away from faith because of this picture of God that we read about in the Old Testament and sometimes in the New Testament too. Let's not oversimplify things and just say, this is an Old Testament thing. It's, it's not. And some people have just resisted the idea of faith altogether because this, this question, this pebble is just too much to get over, and 
you have Richard Dawkins, part of the New Atheist Movement, and, and he says this. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogamist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, maligomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I mean, he basically says, this Old Testament, he's, he's, a, he's a jerk. That's his conclusion. And as followers of Jesus, we have to wrestle with the scriptures because this is in our scriptures, but also in our scriptures are the words of, of Jesus, where he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 45, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Just a quick time out. We've heard it said. Yeah, we heard you say it, God. Wipe them out. Destroy them completely. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Because when you love your enemies and when you pray for those who persecute you, you look like God. You start to take on his nature and his character. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. For he makes God, this is what God is like. He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. Have you ever stopped to recognize when the sun comes up in the morning and comes up on everyone? And he sends the rain to the just and the unjust. That's why your neighbor, who's a little bit of a jerk to you, got rain on his lawn just like yours did this weekend, right? And his point, Jesus' point is, God is ridiculously good, even to people who are really, really bad, which begs the question, did God just get anger management counseling in between the time where he said, go kill them all, wipe them out, women, children, donkeys, camels, etc.? And then, I mean, how do we reconcile these two competing views of God? Let me say it like this. Is God, in the nature and character of who he is, is he a, a genocidal, quote-unquote, maniac? Or is he a gracious savior? Which one is he? Which one is he? It's a huge question. I'm going to do my best to give us a framework this morning. I'm going to do my best to tackle it, but I don't expect that you'll completely agree with my conclusions. It's such a huge topic that we need way more time to talk about it all throughout. But let me first frame the discussion for you. There's two views of how people typically reconcile this seemingly incongruent contradiction. Here's the first way. The first way people reconcile it is essentially, God said it, they did it, that settles it. God said it, they did it, that settles it. It's a flat reading of the scripture. Um, we see God speaking to the nation of Israel. They receive what he says. They execute it. End of story, Paulson. Is there anything really left to discuss here? And typically, typically, in this view, and, and a lot of evangelicals hold this view, appeals to the sovereignty of God in the punishing or judging of sin. And we follow that with, who can know the mind of God? 
I mean, who can know the mind of God? God's ways are higher than our ways. Well, let me push back on that just a little bit and say, according to that line of reasoning, they're also higher than his ways. Because what he says is, I die for my enemies. And what he says is, I'm good to even the evil. And God, if those are your rules, why do you seem to break your rules? So in view one, here's the problem we have. In view one, we have a really, really high view of scripture, which I say yes and amen to, but we have a really, really low view of Jesus and the words that he taught and the way that he taught us to live and the revelation of the father that Jesus is and was. The second view though, so if the first view is God said it, they did it, that settles it. The second view is Israel heard it God didn't say it, therefore we can ignore it. So basically, this view would say that what we read in the Old Testament is not the words of God, it's the history of God's people as they understood God, as they walked with God, and as they journeyed with God. So, if the first view has a really low view of Jesus and a really high view of Scripture, the second view has a really high view of Jesus... Because they're saying, Jesus is what God is like, and God dies for his enemies. He doesn't kill his enemies. But they have a really low view of the scriptures. And I would argue the second view actually cuts the legs out from underneath its very argument. Because how do we really know that Jesus is what God is like if we don't know that from the scriptures? We're just choosing things we like and discarding things that we don't in the end. So, can we all agree this is not a simple answer, okay? That both of these predominant views have massive flaws. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you what I'm going to call a third way. But before I do that, what I want to make sure we do is understand the discussion, the quandary, the history, if you will, in a little bit more fullness. Because if you're like me, I I had a caricature of these wars in my head when I went to study the scriptures. And so what I'd like to do is hopefully dispel three myths that I've heard many people have when it comes to the issue of genocide, the Canaanite genocide, which is what we're talking about. The Canaanite genocide, God's commanding of it in the Old Testament. Here's myth number one. Myth number one is Israel is the malevolent, warmongering powerhouse. That when we think of these wars, we sometimes think of Israel with all of its army and with all of its resources marching into a certain place and wiping out its enemy, flexing its muscles and going, that's what we're talking about. If you read the scriptures, though, Israel throughout the scriptures is the underdog. I mean, they've just endured 400 years of slavery as a nation. Now, let's just take a little straple. How much training for military conquest do you think slaves got in the empire? Big, fat, zero. Why? Well, because Empire 101 is you don't train your enemy to turn on you and kill you. So Israel doesn't have military training. They've just, as they enter into the land of Canaan, where the promised land, they've endured 40 years of wandering around in the desert with one pair of clothes that miraculously didn't wear out. I mean, they're not exactly Hulk Hogan marching into the ring going, let's do this. 
But that's the caricature we often have in our minds. And instead of a powerful nation going to take over a less powerful nation, when we read these stories in the scriptures, we should have more in mind a a peasant group of Iraqis who rise up to retake Mosul from the powers that be. We shouldn't have a powerful nation in our mind going in to wreak havoc. Not, Not only that, but all throughout, it's God saying, not you go fight for me, which is typically what holy war, quote unquote, is today, people fighting for God. It's actually God saying, I will go and fight for you. Second myth. Second myth is that Israel attacks civilian centers and slaughters many innocent people. When you read the term city in the Old Testament, more times than not, what it's talking about is, is a military garrison, a protected area where military people gathered, trained, and fought from. Um, Jericho in Joshua chapter 6 is a great example. The city of Jericho, quote-unquote, was roughly six or seven acres large, which is about the same amount of property that the church owns. And they had somewhere between 100 and 200 soldiers that were living in Jericho at the time. Now, they also had at least one civilian family, and we know her name. What's her name? Rahab, right. And Rahab, at the end of the story, does what? She walks away. She walks away alive. She helps Israel, and she walks out. See, when we read cities, we should think military garrison, and when the armies came, if there were civilians there, they would have scattered and they would have left because they knew that a war was coming in. And so, Rahab and the story is saved. I would also anecdotally add, we don't have any, any historical resources from the scriptures that would tell us of anything other than that happening in these quote-unquote cities. We don't have recorded the slaughter of many innocent people. We just don't have that. Which begs the question, well, hey, Paulson, it says right there in my Bible, go and kill woman, child, and infant. What do you do with that? I'm really glad you asked. Here's what I do with that. I address myth number three. And myth number three is that we are intended to read every war account or every word in the war accounts literally. Okay. Now I just want you to take a deep breath. Pause for a moment before you start throwing things at me. Are you saying, Ryan, this is what you think? Are you saying that you don't think these battles actually happened? No. I think they happened, and I think they happened as the narrators of the scriptures tell us that they happened, but embedded within the scriptures are these hints and winks that they are not speaking literally at every bend, but that they're using the general vernacular of their day and embracing a warlike rhetoric when they're retelling their history. Let let me give you one example. I'll address the women and children, infants and etc. first. That That was a common idiom in the day this was written. Kill everybody. Women, children, and infants. It was an idiom. It was a way of saying, wipe everything out. Destroy everything. 
And we see this conquest, this uh, putting forth in the pages of Scripture that, well, Israel destroyed everyone. Let me give you an example. Joshua 10, verse 40. So Joshua struck, say it with me, church, whole land. The hill country and the Negev, the lowland and the slopes and all of their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And you think to yourself, holy, widespread panic, right? This is just massive genocide. Until you start to read the rest of the stories, where the Amalekites and the Amorites and the Jebusites and the Perizzites and the people that occupied the lowland and the highland are back a few chapters later. You just go to the book of Judges, read Judges chapters 1 through 3, and all these same people are their enemies. And your question should be, how is that possible? Which part of this is wrong? Well, I'd submit our part is wrong. That we're not intended to read this literally to say the whole land and all their kings and none remaining in the way that we read it in a flat context. We're actually supposed to step into the text and let it define for us what it means by this. And as we read further and the scripture unpacks the scripture, we see that this meant that they were victorious, not that they left none of their enemies breathing. It can't mean that because of the rest of the way that the scriptures unfold. These are their enemies for decades and centuries. I'll give you one example. Within the same passage that we see this type of thing happening. Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is at the very incipient stages of Canaanite conquest. And listen to uh, the author of Deuteronomy telling people uh, what they're intending to do. When the Lord your God gives you over to them, or gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to, say it with me church, complete destruction. He defines that. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Just a question, quick question. How many people have made a covenant with somebody that's dead? Like, why is that a concern? Kill them all. Oh yeah, and don't make a covenant with them. Doesn't seem necessary, does it? No. You shall not intermarry with them. Quick time out. How many dead people have you seen get married lately? Not a lot, which should be signals to us, read the story as it's written, not as we wish it were written. Devote to complete destruction means separate yourself completely. Do not take on their religious, pagan, um, idolatrous interaction with their God, but keep, stay devoted to your God. And so... Do I believe this story has actually happened? 100%. Yes and amen, I do. But we need to read them as the entirety of Scripture would have us read them. And that's an informed reading. It's a literary reading, not just a literal reading. So, you go, all right, Paulson, so I get it. it. Maybe it's not as widespread or genocidal as it felt at first, but that still doesn't answer the question. You said there was two options, Ryan. One is God said it, they did it, that settles it. 
The second is, God didn't say it, they heard it, therefore we could ignore it. And there's a third way coming. But before we get there, let me give you a framework for the way that God interacts throughout the entire scriptures. God is like Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. Is that the fullest revelation we have, the best picture we have, the least fuzzy picture we have of what God is like is displayed in the work of Jesus, specifically Jesus on the cross dying for his enemies. That's the best picture we have of what God is like. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 verses 2 through 3 says this, but in these last days he, God, has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the entire world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. That means when God shines, it looks like Jesus. And the exact imprint of his nature. The book of Colossians will say that he's the icon, the stamp of what God is like. John chapter 14 verse 9, Philip will say to Jesus, Jesus, show us what God is like. And uh, Jesus says back to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen him. The fact that God dies for his enemies is great news for everybody in this room. Yes, The scriptures are going to clearly say that you and I, that when we were God's enemies, he stepped in with his atoning goodness and his love. So the fact that God dies for his enemies is the only reason that we are a part of his kingdom today. That's number one. Number two is that God in his very character and his nature is incarnational. That the incarnation is not an event solely an event that happens. Yes, the incarnation is when Jesus takes on flesh and steps into human history and humanity to become a sacrifice for us, but but God in his very character is incarnational. The entire universe is incarnational. It's God creating space where the divine and the human can interact, where he can lower himself to become known by people who he would be unknowable to if it weren't for the quote-unquote playing field that he himself created. The very universe itself is incarnational. It's God stepping into creating and then stepping into human history. And so all throughout the pages of scripture, here's what we see. We see that God meets us, humanity, as we are, not as he wishes we were. God meets humanity as we are, not as he wishes that we were. It's summarized really beautifully by the words of Jesus when he says this, don't give to dogs what is holy, don't throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you, which pretty much summarizes my point, let's close in prayer. No, what's Jesus saying? Uh, Jesus is saying, even if you have something really good like a pearl and you throw it to a pig and they're unable to digest it, they're unable to take it in, it's irrelevant. The goodness of the gift is irrelevant if the receiver can't take it in. And all throughout history, God has been practicing this truth. He meets humanity where they are, he gives them what they can receive, and he moves them forward. Let me give you two examples. If you're going, whoa, 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 Paulson, I'm not sure I agree with that. Okay, let me give you two examples. Uh, First example is sacrifice. 
We have an entire book in the Old Testament devoted to ritual sacrifice. God teaching his people how to offer animals uh, as a way to become right with him. Well, if you start reading history, in an ancient Near East culture, sacrifice to a, a, a tribalistic deity was the norm. It was what everybody did. And so when God takes the people of Israel and they're in this culture, he uses the culture around them to point to a deeper, more transcendent truth. He uses sacrifice. It's very different than it was in an ancient Near East culture. He moves it forward, but sacrifice was never his goal. You know how I know that? The Bible. Because Jesus will say, hey, here's what I'm really interested in. Go learn what it means. I desire mercy, not what? Sacrifice. And throughout, Jesus will say, listen, sacrifice was never the intention, which is why we've moved beyond sacrifice. But God met his people in sacrifice because that's where they were at, not necessarily because it's where he was at. He's incarnational. He's He's stepping in. So I would argue that sacrifice was the best thing that God could do for his people, given where they were at, but it was never intended to be an end in and of itself. He was leading them to the place where their very lives would be the sacrifice. In fact, the entire law is considered to be a tutor, taking them from one place and leading them to a different place. Second example, slavery. Have you ever wondered why the Bible just doesn't condemn slavery outright? Why there's no verse you can point to that says slavery is categorically wrong all the time? I do. I I would have loved to have seen that in there, but it's not. Here's what we do have, though. We have one of the two or three distinct formative narratives of the people of God being about them released from slavery, the Exodus narrative. This was formative for the people of God. We have God meeting the Israelites in the Old Testament and giving them a new way to interact with slaves that were a part of the society in that day. So he goes, no, you can't treat slaves as though they're inhumane, as though they're not people. You have to care for slaves. You have to treat them well. And then in the New Testament, we have the church being commanded that there's not slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, but all are one in Christ. So we have this movement. God meets humanity where they are, puts forward his ethos, his DNA, his heart into their situation, moves the ball forward, then meets them in the New Testament, moves the ball forward again to where we go today. Man, it is categorically wrong. Not because we can point to a verse that says it is, but because we can point to the scriptures that say that every human being was created with dignity, value, and worth, and that our God has come that the slaves might be freed. He's always had a bigger plan, but he's always met humanity exactly where they are, not where he wishes they were. Are we tracking? Sort of? Okay. So here's, here's the third way. Because here, here's my, my perspective is that God did say it. God did say, go, go kill these people. And my perspective is that 
the revelation of God being like Jesus does not fit alongside other pictures of God, but that it's above every picture of God. It defines what God is like. And in these genocidal narratives, here's what we see, is we see that God accommodates Israel in their tribalism to lead them to his kingdom. He meets them where they are in order to lead them forward, in order to take them to someplace different. God meets us in our culture, but ultimately leads us to his kingdom. That, that's his intention all throughout the scriptures. Let me give you two examples. Um, one would be, if you saw me um, holding um, Amy and Darwin's beautiful little baby, Eliana, and you heard me talking, oh, you sweet little Eliana, you're so, you're so cute, you're so, you know, ba- that whole baby, really annoying baby talk, okay? I hope you wouldn't assume, hey, Paulson forgot how to talk. Like, what happened to this guy? Well, what happened to me is I have a different audience, right? That I'm, I'm interacting with this person who can't understand, not that they can understand the little thing either, but we're trying to meet them where they actually are, not where we are or where we wish they were. Second, uh, second illustration. This week, I had the chance to look back through my first Bible I ever had, my NIV study Bible. I love that Bible. And I'm a note taker, and I wrote all over that Bible. And I read through it, and I thought, oh, dear God, thank you for the way that you've been at work in me. And I thank you that I'm not, I'm not that same person anymore. Anybody, can anybody say yes and amen to that? Am I the only one, right? Just keep a journal if you want to see God's work in your life. And, and I went back through and I started to read it. And I, and I noticed that the way that God interacts with us on a personal level is also the way that God interacts with us on a human level. That he met me exactly where I was as a punk 17-year-old kid. And he loved me there, but he didn't leave me there. He does the same thing throughout history. He meets people where they are, not where he wishes they were, and he leads them forward. So, you may be asking, hey Ryan, is that a little bit pretentious? That we've grown so much as a quote-unquote human race from the time where tribal deities were not only worshipped but used in order to exploit people? Have we, have, we, have we grown that much? Is that a little bit pretentious? And to that I would say yes and no. What we're claiming is that Jesus taught us a better way to be human. What we're claiming is that Jesus is the ultimate human being. And he teaches us what it looks like to live in relationship with our heavenly father. Is it pretentious? Only if we're saying, hey, we're here and you should be here also. But we're actually saying God is the one who's teaching us. God is the one who's installing his kingdom. It's not ours, it's his. And we are trying to live in line with what he is doing. And the scriptures, friends, are, I mean, it's a story You can't get to one point in the story and then go back and say, I want to live at the very beginning of the story. God is up to something. There's movement. There's growth. There's development. This is a very good thing. When you read the story of conquest in the Old Testament, what we should understand is God accommodates Israel and the tribalism to eventually lead them to his kingdom. Which ironically 
If you go and you read about the life of Christ, what the Israelites wanted was for him to be a tribalistic deity. They actually wanted him to be the Israelite, only Israelite God. And what Jesus dies for is the fact that he's the king of the earth, not just the tribalistic deity of Israel. It's a bigger story. Okay, so in summary, and you're going, there's three points left, Paulson. Summary, stick with me. So in summary, I just want to make sure we're on the same page here. Did God command holy war in the Old Testament? My answer to that is yes. But he did not command it because it was something that is in his heart or it's something that's in his character or something that he essentially wanted. He commanded it because it's where humanity was at and he commanded it not to keep humanity there, which is why the new kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth does not look like tribalistic warfare. He commanded it in order to bring his people forward. Okay. Now, if you're tracking with me, you're probably asking the question, hey, Paulson, like, is there, are there anchors that transcend this? Like, are there things going on in these stories that are bigger than just these stories? Because we, if we just take this view, it seems like we could float into all sorts of different places with different philosophies about different things. I'm glad you asked that question. Let me give you three things that are present in Canaan, in genocide and conquest, that are present on the cross, and that are present at the second coming of Christ also. So three things that transcend all of these stories that have seemingly competing narratives. First, God is fighting in every case. God is fighting for the advancement of peace or shalom, not for the destruction of people. So if you were here last week, what you heard me say was that in order to start a movement, you need to know the enemy, and if we have the wrong enemy, we'll choose the wrong battle, and the enemy isn't flesh and blood, Paul says in the book of Ephesians, but it's actually principalities and powers of darkness in the evil world. That's the enemy. You've never laid eyes on a human enemy. The enemy is evil. Look up at me for a second. The enemy has never changed. Never changed. Whether it's in Canaan or on the cross, the enemy is the same. And God's battle with the enemy plays out in the pages of history and in the lives of people. But the truth of the matter remains, as the prophet Ezekiel recounts, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Like, I don't get off on that. God says, I don't like that. That doesn't get me excited. And God's violence is against violence. If there were no violence in the world, God would not be violent. It's not in his character. It's not in his nature. Sin is violent. Violence is essential to sin. And God's violence against violence, if you will, illuminates the purpose, I would argue, not of country versus country war, but the way that we see military, the way that we see 
judges in our day, the way that we see government and police officers operating. That a modern day equivalent of what we see going on in the pages of scripture in 1 Samuel 15, for example, is not jihad or inquisition. It's actually government and policies and police and lawmakers. Where in Romans chapter 13, Paul will say to the church at Rome, for he is in the, talking about um, government workers, they're God's servants for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of the Lord, avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Why? To protect and preserve shalom, peace, goodness, and human flourishing. See, we see this fight, this fight for peace, this fight for goodness, this war on war, this violence against violence where death kills death and sin kills sin and evil kills evil. We see it both in Canaan and on the cross and we also see it at the second coming. So God's fighting for the advancement of peace, not the destruction of people. Second, God's fighting for the judgment of sin, not the punishment of people. God's fighting for the judgment of sin, not the punishment of people. And it's important for us to know this word judgment literally means the straightening out. So sin fractures, sin bends, sin twists, if you will. And when God comes and God judges, he undoes that twisting. He makes the world to rights, as one of the famous New Testament scholars, N.T. Wright, says. He makes the world to right. And throughout the accounts of holy war, you see the nation of Israel being used as a, as a tool, as an instrument of God's judgment, a, a straightening out of, of what's gone wrong. It typically rubs us the wrong way, but I would argue that we would not want to live in a world where this didn't happen. And I'd also anecdotally add that God waits 400 years before he judges the atrocities of the Canaanites' sins. The infant sacrifice, the ritual, ritual prostitution, the oppression of the poor, the growing gap between the rich and the poor, that God waits 400 years before he steps in and he judges that sin. But here's the deal, friends. God's love in Christ is the judgment that his love will either straighten us out if we're willing to repent, if we're willing to let go of our way, it'll either straighten us out, which is God's intent, or if we decide to hold on to our twistedness, we will break with his judgment. It will either shape us or it will break us. And God is just, but if we refuse to let go of our sin in light of his holiness, we will perish with our sin. The fire of his love will wipe us out. Which is actually really good news. It may not feel like it, but it is. Let me give you an example. There's a, an ad. Um, last year, a, a group, an atheist group put an ad on, on the buses in Great Britain. It says this. It says, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Which, I mean, arguably, if you live in a prosperous place, this could potentially be good news, or at least okay news, based on your perception of God. If you live in a very peaceful, very justice-oriented place. 
Now, let me ask you, is this good news? There's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life, for people that were victims of the Manchester bombing this week. Is this good news for Coptic Christians in Egypt, where they're wiped out while worshiping? Now, that's, that's terrible news. That's terrible news. And in fact, I would argue that's not the kind of world that anybody wants to live in, that God's coming justice for our world is one of the greatest resources that actually empowers us to live peaceably today. That's Romans chapter 12, 19, and 20, if you're interested. Here's what N.T. Wright says. He says, in a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might be a coming day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and the weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. And that's God's intention. And, I, and I'm not saying that people aren't destroyed by the fire of his love and that people aren't punished, but I'm just saying that those aren't his intentions when he sets out. His intention is to judge sin. His intention is to push forward his peace. And his intention is, finally, the expansion of his love, not the exclusion of people. And we know this because this is the testimony of the whole. That from the very beginning, God creates humanity to be in relationship with him. And in the end, humanity is in relationship with him. And in the middle, God works out how that happens, what that looks like, and how we step into that design. But make no mistake about it, from the very beginning, his intention is that every nation would be blessed. And his statement is that eventually happens through the work of Jesus. And so... When Israel would go and they would conquer a place, it wasn't about the exclusion of people, it was about the expansion of, of his love. And when that happened, did some people die? Yeah, they did. But other people were made alive. This is where the, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow are cared for, where, where the crops around the edges are left so that the poor can have something to survive, that God's goodness and flourishing is seen wherever his kingdom starts to take root. That is his intention. The fight is to open the door wider, not to close it so that some people can't get in. After all, God is love, and he sends his son for us because he loves us. And so, in Canaan, on the cross, and at the second coming, we see the fight being for the extension of love, not for the exclusion of people. And certainly, some people are excluded because they refuse to bow to his love. But that's not his intention. So does that answer all your questions? No. Me neither. Me neither. I asked Aaron, I texted him this week and said, hey, do I get six hours to preach? I need six hours for this message, and then I feel like we can scratch the surface. No, you may disagree with me, and I, I want to tell you that's okay. That's okay. Um, and I'd invite the dialogue because I think it's that important. But let me just end by saying, any simplistic resolution to this really complex question should not satisfy us. We should wrestle with 
Why does God kill his enemies in the Old Testament and die for them in the New? How do we, how do we reconcile these two seemingly competing pictures of God? My perspective, or my at least what I'll put forward, is God meets humanity where they are to eventually lead them, you and me, to his kingdom, where there is no suf- more suffering, where there is no more crying, where there are no more tears. He meets us where we are to lead us eventually to where he is. And in his kingdom, friends, there is only one God and there is only one tribe, and it's the human tribe. And he loves us all. Let's embrace that kingdom and let's pray together that that kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus, we, with all the questions that we have, we bring them. We don't leave them at the door. We, We bring them to your throne. We bring them to bow at your feet together. And Father, as a community of faith, as we try to wrestle with how to answer really complex and deep questions, hard questions. I pray that we keep in mind, first and foremost, that you loved us when we were broken and when we were in need, that you met us exactly where we are, and that you continue to love us, even though we're far from a finished product. And as you do that for us, may we be the kind of people that do that for others. May we live in the way of Jesus, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And all God's people said, amen, amen and amen. If you have questions throughout the week, please to Dan Elliott. That's D-E-L-L, two L's, two T's. He would love to get back with you. I'm just kidding. Hey, we love you, South. I'll be up front if I can answer any questions for you or pray with you, and our elders and prayer team will be up front too. God bless you as you go. Have a great rest of your memorial.